Hello and welcome back to the Great Woman Artist podcast. Last week we interviewed Dorothy Price on Catacolvitz and today we look at the life and work of Amrita Shigil as discussed by Sonal Kular. But before we get into this, I am delighted to say that this episode is generously supported by Christie's Auction House. If you're travelling this holiday season, why not stop by Christie's in Milan and Hong Kong to view exceptional works by equally exceptional women artists. First up are two online auctions presented by their Milan team and curated with an all-Italian taste. Bidding for both the 20th and 21st century Milan sale and the dedicated auction of the Agrati collection will open online on the 23rd of November. Don't miss important examples by Yayoka Sama, Chantal Joffe, Carol Rama, alongside a group of works by artists from indigenous communities in Australia. Elsewhere, Christie's Hong Kong Autumn Auctions will kick off on the 25th of November with their highly anticipated 20th and 21st century art evening sale on the 30th of November, led by Joan Mitchell's abstract expressionist masterpiece. This marks the artist's auction debut at Christie's Asia during a major international retrospective. You can visit Palazzo Clerici in Milan and the Hong Kong Convention and Exhibition Centre to view these exciting works in person. Wherever you are in the world, all Christie's exhibitions have free entry and are open to all. You can visit christies.com for more information on the auctions and their pre-sale exhibitions. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is one of the leading scholars on South Asian art, Sonal Kular. Having received her BA from Wellesley College and her MA and PhD from the University of California, Berkeley in art history, Kula has taught in the history of art and gender studies departments of the University of Washington and since 2020 at the University of Pennsylvania. Her research, specialising in work from the 18th century onwards, focuses on conflict, collaboration and globalisation in contemporary art from South Asia and has looked at post-colonial art worlds, feminist geography and the anthropology of art. Soon releasing a new book, Old Stacks, New Leaves, The Arts of the Book in South Asia, and currently completing another, The Art of Dislocation, Conflict and Collaboration in Contemporary Art from South Asia, it is Kula's first book, World Affiliations, Artistic Practice, National Identity and Modernism in India, 1930-1990, that traced the emergence of a national art world in 20th century India, in this book, she emphasises its cosmopolitan ambitions through the careers of four artists, one of which is very excitingly the subject of today's episode, Amrita Sheargill. So now, Kular, welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast. How are you doing today? 
I'm very well, Katie. Thank you for having me. So thank you so much for coming on this podcast. It's really such an honor uh, to speak with you and speak to you, especially about Amrita Sheergill's work. I discovered Sheergill's work a few years ago, and it was the painting, The Three Girls. And I was utterly struck by its tenderness, emotion, beauty, and expression. This almost jewel of a painting that shows these three women contemplating life as if caught in a threshold between their adolescence and adult life. She made around 173 paintings in just 11 years. And I I've only seen a handful of sheer girl works in my life, but they are unlike anything. They feel so contemporary, despite mostly being made nearly a century ago. So I want to know, when and how did you discover the work of Amrita Sheergill? Oh, Katie, I think I'm going to have an answer that will disappoint <laughs> you because I have been asked this question recently. And my best answer is that I think growing up in India, I knew of the artist and knew of her career and work, but cannot remember a first encounter, a transformative moment in front of a Shergill work that changed my life. I think she is someone that I came to as a graduate student who was very interested and excited by developments in history, anthropology, disciplines that had been rethinking histories of modernism and modernity in India and thought that Shergill would be a very compelling figure with whom to join this conversation. That I came to the work in the way that many people still do, through the legend, through the myth, through the stories that we tell about Shergill and the ways in which we make sense of modern Indian art. That said, since I've been a graduate student, I've had many, many transformative moments in front of works by Shergill, and Three Girls is one of my favorites. And I think you're absolutely right, that there is something compelling that is contemporary. You almost feel like you could be chancing upon an encounter or a private moment among people you know, and yet Shergill keeps her figures closed. There's a quality about Three Girls, I think, that is common to other works, I think Shergill's work, even in the early years, is not voyeuristic. So it feels like you're being delivered on the inside, and yet you're being held apart from these figures. And we know that Three Girls, like many of the other works Shergill completed, was modeled by people in her everyday life. She did often paint from models and actually couldn't paint you know, away from them or apart from them. So I do think that there is something about the work that is mysterious and real at the same time. Totally. I love this quote by her. She says, I am personally trying to be through the medium of line, colour and design, an interpreter of the life of the people. Mm-hmm. And it's that kind of reality and rawness that comes out in her work as well. And I love this idea of them being sort of very closed off and internal. And actually, it's almost as though we're not even allowed in to the private space of the people in the painting. That's right. You know, you've actually hit on something that I think is a very important part of Shergill's legacy, which is that there is this great ambition, the public address of these works. You know, she wants to be a painter of India. She is a painter of the people of India and recognized as such. And yet there are such strange portraits. And I say strange in the best possible way. Strange as in they are foreign to the way in which modern art was being practiced in India at that time. They are strange in the sense of estranging us from the familiar. These are people that we might recognize from everyday life, and yet 
they haven't quite appeared to us in this way before. So there's a really fine balancing act between the public address of these works and their private introspection or the privacy that she grants these figures. Mm, Absolutely. And, you know, I mentioned this feeling of being in front of her work as well. And last spring, I was lucky enough to travel to Paris for the Pioneers show at the Musée de Luxembourg and see her self-portrait in the flesh, which is this sort of commanding semi-nude portrait that also exudes this humility and grace. I mean, how do you feel when you are confronted with one of her works? So that work, I will tell you, Self-Portrait is Tahitian, my first viewing of that painting, I remember vividly. And it was luminous. Uh, I had only seen it in reproduction. The painting was radiant in many ways and much more dynamic than I would have thought in reproduction because of the play of light. There is a green-gray shadow that I've written about that appears behind the nude figure. I have speculated that it could be the artist suggesting a male gaze, looking at the viewer of the work. So it is really a play on male and female gazes, on modern spectatorship, and so on. I do think that the painting is confident in many ways, but it's also vulnerable. It is a self-portrait of the artist as Tahitian. So it is what the art historian Saloni Mathur has called a rejoinder to Gauguin's colonialist representations of women and female sexuality from his works in Tahiti. But it's also a way in which the artist is acknowledging the power of these kinds of orientalizing representations, saying that this is the only way in some ways that her own body can be represented as an Eastern type, as a nude But I mean, you've literally just blown my mind here in the sense that I've never noticed the shadow sort of behind Shergill or perhaps behind us or as though we are the sort of gaze. And actually, she's kind of twisting that idea of us having this sort of, I mean, at the time, it would have been the classic kind of male gaze of this nude figure. And also the fact that, you know, bringing Gauguin, his nudes were very sexualized and very fetishized. And that is such an interesting play on gender and portraiture and this idea of actually what a self-portrait can be. I mean, it's literally kind of blown my mind. (laughs) Absolutely. It is so artificial and self-conscious. Again, in the best ways. I'm not using either of those terms in a negative way. I think that it is showing how constructed our notions of women, the East, of Oriental art might be, and I use that word with caution, but Oriental art is certainly a category that was operative in the 1930s and afterward in Paris. And I think Shergill is asking us, well, how do we make sense of not only our understandings of Asian art, but also our understandings of Asian people and women in particular through the figure of shadow, which is lurking behind the artist, then in the background of the image, you also see floating figures in Chinese dress. You know, this is not a naive portrait in the least. It's very provocative and in some ways instantiates what the critic Gita Kapoor has said about Shergill's work, that her masterworks, if you will, come at different points in the career. And it's not like you can trace a linear progression. You know, she has a very short-lived career, tragically cut short by her death in 1941, But the masterworks in which I would include this one seem to be kind of interspersed in various parts of her short career. 
So Amrita Shirgil was born in Budapest in 1913 to a Hungarian mother and a Sikh father. Her father was a land-owning aristocrat and scholar, but he was also an amateur photographer. And her mother, Marie Antoinette Gotsman, was an opera singer uh, from a Hungarian Jewish family. I mean, tell us about her family. What was her childhood like? You know, I think her family was quite unusual. Unusual not in just the ways that we would imagine, because her father was from this land-owning Sikh Punjabi family, and her mother was a Hungarian woman. So not just because of her mixed racial identity, but this is a family that had very strong artistic and cultural inclinations. This is a family that led a relatively unconventional life, shuttling between India and Europe and choosing a path of intellectual pursuit, cultural experimentation over conformity to social mores, a family that was incredibly privileged, but that also was aware of their difference from the rest of Indian society, or at least the elite sections of Indian society with which this family mingled. So I wouldn't say that Shergill had a particularly settled childhood, but it was formative. The moving between India and Europe, the many different schools that she attended or the private tutorials that she had. And then I think the encouragement at home to pursue an artistic career was significant and unusual for a woman of her generation. Yeah, I love this photograph of Amrita and her sister, which is taken by her father when they're really young. And already you can see that kind of zest for just the eccentric way of life, maybe. (laughs) Absolutely. I think there is a myth around Shergill, but her entire family as bohemian, as nonconformist and so on. And I think there's a way in which that's absolutely true. But I also think it's important to situate the artist in her time. Mm. This family was part of an Indian elite, and she had access to a range of critics, curators, scholars, by virtue of her family. Also Mm -hmm. artists, of course, her uncle on her mother's side, Irvin Bakhte, was a prominent Indologist and also encouraged her artistic career and ambition. Painting and and drawing and art was clearly just so ingrained from her because, you know, as as a child, she says, you know, it seems to me that I never began painting, that I have always painted and that I have always had with a strange certitude the conviction that I was meant to be a painter and nothing else. Yes. And I think, you know, these kinds of statements come from Shergill pretty early on. Mm. So this is an artist who wrote a great deal. And I think Shergill absolutely was conscious of her genius, if you will, of her talent, maybe is the better word, but also participated in creating a kind of cult of celebrity around it. So, you know, in terms of manipulation of image and self-promotion, Shergill certainly perform the artist as a kind of performer. So I think Mm. we should take what's written in these letters and in public statements with a grain of salt. But I would say this is an artist who really did want to be an artist from a very early age. Mm. But I mean, they travelled around extensively because in 1921, she must have been about eight, with the Hungarian economy crashing and at the end of World War I, they moved to Summerhill in Shimla, northern India. I mean, what do you think that transition must have been like for her? I think that transition must have been a shock. I think that you wouldn't notice the transition from being part of what has been described as an intensely cultured and intellectual society in Hungary, of which her family was a part by virtue of 
her mother's connections to the summer capital of the British Raj. So Shimla was very much part of a certain kind of social world of British and Indian elites, very conservative by Shergill's assessment, colonialist, one might say, in terms of its understanding of Indian culture. I don't think that anyone was going to Shimla at that period to reevaluate India, its art and its people. Mm. You know, an unlikely place to end up other than, of course, her family had a home there for the kind of work that she would go on to do in India after the return in you know 1935 but i think you know going from a kind of more experimental cultural and intellectual milieu to a world that was much more closed to that kind of experiment must have been hard mm. because then i mean in 1923 when she was 10 the family also visited Florence to see the Italian sculptors. And then she returned to Catholic school in India. I mean, what were her teenhoods like? Because there has sort of been, again, this myth that she was quite this rebellious teenager. <laughs> right. And I think you certainly see in the letters, which have been preserved by the estate, a sense of that rebellion in terms of her own declarations in writing and in drawing and painting that she resisted what she was being taught or what was on offer at school and at home. But I think according to family members who published an account in the early 70s of her life, and some family members and close friends who were still alive in the 1970s to be able to comment on what her life was like, have said that those years, you know, around the time that she was 10, were rather different than what we understand her to be by the time she's in her 20s. So she was an introverted and serious child. She seems to have had, I don't know at 10, whether you would call it melancholia, but, you know, dark moods, feeling unsettled by all of the movement from one place to another, and also turbulence at home. It seems like there was a history of mental illness in the family, the mother in particular. Her mother eventually committed suicide after Shergill's death. So that kind of situation at home, no doubt, affected the child. Yeah, wow. Because at then age 16, they actually then sailed from India to Paris to pursue her artistic dreams. I mean, am I right in thinking that it was actually the uncle, Irvin Bacte, who did that? Well, you know, it's a good question about where she was getting all of this encouragement. So mm. I've said this earlier, but I do think it's worth reinforcing that Shergill was really quite unique as a professional artist in India in the 1930s, as a woman, in terms of the kind of career she was able to carve out. It's not like we don't know of other women producing art in that period, but someone who achieved the kind of success that she did and showed that kind of ambition is really quite unusual. So to trace it back to like, you know, what were the decisions made in her childhood or what were the conditions in the family that enabled her to pursue that career? I think the uncle being an Indologist is very much an influence on her. And Bhakti apparently wanted to be a painter before he became a scholar. There was, you know, that interest or impulse in the family. And I think having a mother who was a skilled musician, a father who was a talented photographer, certainly contributed to their collective decision to go to Paris when Shergill was 16. I suspect that the family also recognized that there was a serious talent here. Mm. That it's not just a precocious child that had to be humored, but that this was a talent to be nurtured. 
Mm. Entering Paris in 1929, the early 1930s, I mean, it was just one of the most exciting places on earth, really, for art. I mean, it was the kind of absolute centre of the avant-garde and modernity. And think about how many people had already sort of paved the way. People like Susan Valadon, Gauguin, Montagliani, they were all there at that time and sort of paving the way for this new world that was starting to sort of take shape. I mean, where did she study in Paris? And as a woman, what was that like? Great question. And the best work that's been done on this topic is by a Hungarian art historian called Katlin Keshru. And, you know, I'm really indebted to her work to make sense of Shergill's Paris years. I think that apart from her letters, Keshru's writing is the best source on Shergill's Paris years. There's a great irony about Shergill's move to Paris, which is exactly what you have said, you know, a kind of a hotbed of avant-garde activity. But the irony is that she studies in a fairly conservative set of salons and schools. So first with Pierre Vaillant at the Académie de la Grande Chaumière, and then at the École des Beaux-Arts with Lucien Simon. Hardly practitioners of the avant-garde tradition associated with Matisse or Picasso. In fact, the kind of artist that Shergill becomes involved with, alongside the academic circles with which she's involved in Paris, are figures who become associated with a return to realism between the wars. So not the kind of experiments in cubism or abstraction that we associate often with the avant-garde tradition, but rather with a group of artists, many of whom were committed to the left, to the Communist Party, and a return to the human figure after the First World War and before the Second. So in some ways, Shergill's work is rather different than the kind of artist that she claims to admire. The work of Valadon, Matisse, Modigliani, Gauguin, uh, she certainly knew that work, but her work in Paris from 1929 until 1934, doesn't really resemble it very closely. Mm. What did sort of being exposed to the likes of Valadon and Gauguin and Modigliani, I mean, mean for her in terms of embracing this new style? You know, she really admired that tradition in writing, but certainly I don't think self-portrait as Tahitian of 1934 would have been possible without an awareness of Gauguin. I think Paris was a place that is often narrated in the biographies of Shergill as where she came into her own. She came into her own as a person, as an artist, really enjoyed the freedoms of Paris that had not been available to her, say, in Shimla before their arrival in Paris, or frankly, in Hungary. So Paris was a place where the kind of experimentation and nonconformity that Shergill and her family valued was perfectly at home. At the same time, I don't see in those early works very much formally that connects Gauguin, Modigliani, Matisse, and Valadon to Shergill's art. I think there are preoccupations with a human figure, with the relationship of person and thing, figure and landscape, you know, but these are kind of shared questions and problems in a European tradition of painting. You know, when we look at these early works such as Self-Portrait with Easel from the 1930 or The Torso from 1931 or something, they do seem sort of quite classic and classically academic. It's really the kind of later years that I think she's really kind of breaking out into her own. And in 1932, she was sort of described as a breakthrough work, Young Girls, which received a gold medal in 1933 at the Paris Salon. Can you tell us about this painting and what was the kind of significance of this? This is a 
a really important painting, I think, to understand Shergill's career. I think Two Girls gives you a very strong indication of what this artist is about and what her interests are. It was modeled by her sister, Indira, and by a friend, colleague, and fellow artist at the Ecole de Beaux-Arts, Denise Proutot. So it's a portrait showing two women in an interior space. They are, like many of Shergill's figures, both available to us and kind of closed off from us. It's like we're being delivered into this private space, and yet their interiority is protected in many ways by the artist. The artist is interested in a play of line and color. The brunette is angular, sharp. The blonde is rounded and soft by comparison. There's also a suggestion that the portrait refers to a tradition of making des amis portraits, which is to say two friends, a suggestion of sexual intimacy between the two women in this interior space. There's a really astonishing photograph of the making of this work taken by Shergill's father, Umrao Singh Shergill. In that photograph, Shergill is standing to the left of her sister Indira, and on the right, self-portrait with easel is presented. Shergill is present, so is Umrao Singh. And reading that photograph alongside the painting is very revealing because you can see in many ways how the artist saw herself as part of the scene. There's a lot of formal and social concerns being worked out in that painting that tell us a lot about Shergill's work to come. And I will say as a last point, which is very important to thinking about Shergill's work from the 30s in India, there's a kind of theatricality. There's a self-awareness theatricality, not just the kind of heavy drapery and so on, but a sense that this painting is realist in some sense. You look, can look at that photograph and you can absolutely identify the two sitters as the people who appear to us in Young Girls. And at the same time, this is very much a painting that is invested in artificiality, in construction. And that tableau-like quality or theatricality is something that you can see in Shergill's later work. Totally. I mean, there's even so much theatricality. I mean, the girl at the front, you know, you can feel the cushion on that chair and you can feel the sort of drapery falling over her knees and the lace that kind of comes down by her feet. But also she's, I guess she's semi-nude and she has these kind of locks of hair and this comb that she's holding. I mean, there is so much sort of going on. And in a way, I think there's so much to sort of unpack. And I think with Shergill's portraits, you know, they might seem like something at first, but actually they're very complex in a way. They are. And the bowl of cherries on that table, you have to think about, you know, is that just a play of form or is, again, there's some sexual suggestion? Yes, but there's also sort of the still life element as well. And actually that sort of really echoes one of Cezanne's still lives as well. It seems like it is obviously embedded in this very painterly, very sort of French Parisian avant-garde tradition. But at the same time, there is, like you say, the dichotomies and contradictions maybe between the two sitters. Absolutely. There's a lot more going on than one would suspect. Yeah. Um, so you could easily dismiss this as, oh, this is a conservative portrait that wins recognition from the salon and mm. is completely apart from, let's say, an avant-garde tradition. But you've already seen it. There's lots of citations of that avant-garde tradition that she's working through. Yeah. I mean, she's clearly just so well-versed in, in art history and has so much knowledge of it. I mean, it's fascinating. You know, this woman coming into Paris and actually almost reinterpreting and referencing these elements from art history. 
But I mean, in 1933, she began to feel again, as her incredible diary suggests, haunted by an intense longing to return to India, feeling in some strange, inexplicable way that there lay my destiny as a painter. Shergill's writing in letters, in public statements, are full of declarations like that. And I have to tell you, (laughs) 20 years later um, from when I began reading them seriously, I'm not sure still how we could or should read them. I think there's a way in which she is probably narrating. I mean, this is still a very young person. Yeah. Narrating passionately, honestly, her desire to return to India to explore that country and its traditions. But how much of those kinds of declarations were also a function of institutions and institutional barriers? So we know from biographies, from writing by the artist herself, that in Paris, she was warmly welcomed into a group of artists at the École de Beaux-Arts, but also treated as an exotic and foreign entity, as a mysterious princess. This is by her fellow artist, Denise Bouteau. Her teacher, Lucienne Simon, described her work as ill-suited to the gray studios of the West and more suited to the light of the East. So there are many ways in which it's not clear that these kinds of judgments didn't have some impact on the artist and gave her a sense of limits to what she could achieve in Europe. Mm, That's so interesting. Also, around this time in 1934, she makes self-portrait as a Tahitian. And obviously, this is a complete turning point in her career. It's almost the kind of moment that it shifts. Of course, you can still tell it's Shegil, but the earlier work compared to these later works, it's sort of almost unrecognisable. I absolutely agree. I think self-portrait as Tahitian is a turning point in Mm. the artist's career. And I love what you said about Shergill being so deeply invested in, interested in art historical discourses, knowing a lot of art history. And I think self-portrait as Tahitian is a painting that is certainly not realist in any conventional sense. I mean, you could almost put young girls and self-portrait as a Tahitian together, and other than an interest in artifice and masquerade, which they share, the style, the handling of paint couldn't be more different. Self-portrait as Tahitian is much flatter. It is the more modernist picture in terms of acknowledging its debt to an avant-garde. Its title is ironic, playful, self-conscious. Young Girls is much more literal. So I think you're absolutely right. It's a kind of a pivot that announces her departure to India and her break in some ways from the academic training that she's had. Yeah, absolutely. And also just painting this long hair as well is like incredibly suggestive. I mean, you don't often see long hair in painting and she's a kind of master of it. Again, but there's very different types of hair as well. Oh, absolutely. She did not, to our knowledge, model that painting. But in many ways, the hair is like a wig. It's like a costume. And Mm. in fact, it has a little bit in common with some of the other works that she paints in those years in Paris, the self-portraits, in which she seems to be trying on identities for size. Self-portrait with easel. She's a very serious young artist looking earnestly toward the viewer of the painting. There are others in which she's playing a kind of bohemian figure with long tresses and a flirtatious gaze, you know, very different than the serious way that she presents herself. So the range of 
self-portraiture that you see in which I think in many ways through these self-portraits trying to ask, well, what is the position that a woman artist can occupy in this society, which is to say in the society of Paris, in the modern world, in India? And these self-portraits are a way of thinking through that problem with her own body. Yeah, I mean, I just also have to sort of remind myself that at this point, she's only about 21. She's so young. And to have that maturity and zest for learning and learning quickly as well, I mean, is really unheard of. I mean, this is sort of genius stuff. Clearly, she is so perceptive to everything around her and is determined to also formulate this language. And I do think when you have so much knowledge beneath you, it's almost like a springboard to trying out so many different types. But I mean, she moves back in 1934 to India and she painted intensely and travelled widely, keen to observe and represent Indian villages and their way of life. I mean, how does her work change here? Well, the political project, let's say the aim of her work in India becomes rather different. She comes to India with the intention of painting the people of India, of representing them in a way that is different than they are represented in the work of other artists from that period, and in a very serious and true engagement with artistic traditions of India, which are derived from a range of sources, classical, folk, everyday life, and so on. And these are not ideas that she has in Paris. So there's a kind of a wholly new purpose to the work in India. And she declares herself to be interested in the misery of the people of India, in their poverty and their abjection. And in many ways, the project is a realist portraiture of the people of India. It doesn't seem to me quite like the work always bears that out. There's the wonderful painting that you mentioned, Three Girls, which doesn't really seem to be abject or miserable in any way. Intriguing, certainly, maybe a representation of Asian women who are confined or restrained in some way. But I wouldn't describe that as exoticizing, a contrast to touristic images of India, to posters that are selling India as a place for adventure and of exoticism. Mm. I mean, what's fascinating is that, you know, when we are looking at these works like Bride's Toilet from 1937 or South Indian Villagers Go to Market, also from 1937, there is also this kind of timeless quality in a way. And I say that because, you know, what's so interesting about her work from the 1920s and early 30s is that it's very obviously produced in Paris, has this European modernist aesthetic. And then suddenly with these later works in the 30s, I mean, I know that she takes a lot of influence from cave paintings, etc. But I mean, they have this sort of harmonious, timeless quality, which again, is my point in the, in the beginning about them feeling so contemporary. I mean, South Indian villagers going to market is just this beautiful painting of these adolescent kids. I mean, she paints clothes so amazingly, these sort of pink and blue striped trousers, these ornaments that the women are wearing on her head. There's something about it that feels almost kind of divine. They're in these spaces that don't have any backgrounds or aren't tied to any geographic place. They're just kind of these bodies living quite regally or quite godly-like in these spaces. I couldn't have put it better. And I have to say, <laughs> if Shergill was alive, I think he would be delighted to hear what you have to say. Because timelessness, monumentality, a quality that is 
mundane and divine. You recognize them as ordinary people. You said so. You know, these are a group of adolescents or young people going to market. And at the same time, they are conferred with a kind of dignity and power that make them almost divine. Yeah. So I think there's clearly a reference to the kinds of traditions of painting that Shergill was referring to. And a great irony, but perhaps understandable, is that her work does get more modernist the later we go in her career. So the further she gets from Paris in some ways, the work becomes more modernist. There is the flattening of the picture plane. There is the background, which is extremely abstract. There's a way in which these figures stand for an India that was, Mm. a tradition that existed in antiquity, but also for an India that was to come. So the nation state that was on the horizon that would arrive with India's independence that the nationalist movement desired, that nation to come in many ways is anticipated by these paintings of the 1930s. And I think that's exactly why you're getting a timeless quality to the work. It Mm. is referring back to something that has happened and it is referring to something that will happen. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I guess, you know, that this idea that she does want to focus on the poorer cultures, but at the same time, almost kind of lift them and sort of when you put figures in painting, kind of elevate their beauty and divinity or something as well. Absolutely. She's moved on to a different set of goals. She's very interested by 1937 in integrating various traditions of South Asian art that she encounters in her travels with modernist techniques and modes of representation that she has learned in Europe. So there are clear citations of Rajput painting, of sculpture from Mathura, of temple sculpture from Madurai and from Rameshwaram that she has seen, the paintings of Ajanta. You can see direct connections to those works in her paintings from 1937 onward. And there is absolutely an interest in depicting the people not so much as the poor or the destitute, Rather, you are getting what I have called a representation of the masses. So by this point, Gandhian nationalism is not just on the rise, is a kind of commonly held point of view for elites. And Gandhi placed a great deal of importance in the category of the masses. So the way Indian nationalism was going to move beyond being an elite movement was to involve this category of the masses who were the seed of the citizens of an India to come. And I do think that what Shergill is doing in some of these works is figuring the people of India not as ethnographic types, not as poor subjects in need of reform, but as the masses of a nation that are coming together and that will be citizens. Absolutely. Around this time as well, she was definitely gaining some kind of critical success. Shergill certainly attracted a lot of attention. Shergill was not afraid of controversy and was very good at self-promotion. So she attracted a lot of interest in salons, in society circles. Her work was shown widely in India, partly because of her own initiative. You know, she would seek to have her work shown in various exhibitions in Shimla, in Bombay, in Lahore. These are major cities of the time. It also suggests to you her kind of all India or national ambition. She really does want to be a painter of India and known as such. And yes, there are artists and critics who see her work even then 
as significant. And the criticism is mixed in with praise. So I think the realism, the boldness of her figures, the strength of her work is appreciated by many critics active in India during this period. These are critics who are really impressed by her achievements, but also see the work as unfinished in terms of its goals and ambitions, in terms of wanting to connect those representational techniques learned in Paris with the social and political project that she's identified to represent India. Totally. In June 1938, age 25, she returns to Hungary to marry her first cousin, Dr. Victor Egan, and they ultimately settled in Soraya, but she was unhappy here. How did her approach to painting change in these later years? You know, the painting, I think, gets better and better. There are some really astonishing works of art produced between 1939 and 1940, and the trip to Hungary seems to have been pivotal. She spent a year in Hungary between 1938 and 1939. She came back to India after having married her cousin. There is a great deal of work that's produced in Hungary during that period where she seems to be looking to the model of Bruegel, in terms of thinking about market scenes, peasant life, painting uh, members of her family and friends in the image of potato peelers or of ordinary citizens in some way. And I think that those insights are then applied to thinking about village life in India. So there's an interest in the European pastoral that is then, I think, translated to the works that she produces in and around this village in Saraya, where her family operates and owns a very large sugar factory. So she lives with her family on this estate, has access to the life of the village, of the peasants in and around the estate, but I think most significantly for her work, to the members of her family who live on the estate and to the servants and other people who work within the compound and who she might use as models and thing, I think, is very characteristic of Shergill's late work. You don't see it quite so much in the early work. And there's a lot more interest in thinking about female sexuality, female subjectivity. It's not like these were absent from her early work, but she's presenting the relations of women in a way that is novel for its time, anywhere in the world, I would say, that is honest, that's passionate, that's bold, that asks questions about how we think of women, not as types, not as companions, not as models, but as persons in their own right. So I think female pleasure and desire are really foregrounded in these works. And that's one of the reasons I love them. No, of course. I mean, you communicate so vividly and passionately, you know, sheer gills, love for painting and wanting to sort of unpack what she sees in life and what she experiences as a woman and translates it so beautifully and carefully and considerately onto canvas. But I mean, in 1941, aged just 28, just days before the opening of her first major solo show in Lahore, she became seriously ill. She did. You know, there's a lot of curiosity about Shergill's last days and her ambitions at the end of her short life. There has been speculation about the reasons for that death, everything from an illness, a stomach bug, to a botched abortion. 
And, you know, what went wrong, how it went wrong, I don't think we're going to have access to that information. But that death ended up framing the way we think about the life. It is a death that was so dramatic and tragic that it leaves us with questions about what would have come were she to live. It's also a death that has definitively cast the artist as a kind of myth or legend. Which I think it's so important, you know, to frame her not in relation to her death, but also let's celebrate this life of this person who just clearly was incredibly passionate for painting and just wanted to experiment, you know. (laughs) Yes, and, you know, there is in the later years commitment to a palette of red and green. Shergill is a wonderful painter of red, as I tell my students. And she's deeply interested in not just this palette, but the effects of color and what color can convey, even with all that emotion. These are incredibly controlled experiments, extremely composed paintings that are full of contradiction, but also of reference. You have to know a lot of art history to be able to see what is at work in these works. Totally. And to just round it off with another quote that I do love by her, she says, I can only paint in India. Europe belongs to Picasso, Matisse, Brack, and the rest, but India belongs to me. I mean, so now I'm fascinated, you know, you mentioned at the beginning, you grew up in India, you knew who she was. I mean, there has only been, of my knowledge, you know, the Tate showed a small presentation of Amrita Sheergill in England. I mean, I think we're definitely overdue for a larger one, but I mean, how is Sheergill recognized around the world? Sheergill's reputation is constantly changing and growing. It has during her lifetime and since her death. And the reevaluation of her career, I think, is a project that we're all involved in and likely will be for another hundred years. Sheergill is very well known in India in artistic and intellectual circles. She's not an icon in the way of Frida Kahlo, you know, who is instantly recognizable for whom or around whom we have blankets and fridge magnets and things like that. She's not that kind of artist. Uh, She's an artist who was extremely influential for generations of artists that came after her in India. That is a story that I think isn't sufficiently told and that I set out to tell with worldly affiliations that why are we constantly writing Shergill out of histories of modern art? We acknowledge her as a modern artist, but not as the model for many of the artists who came after her. In terms of Shergill's international reputation, which has operated at a remove from, I think, the way in which she's been received in India, she's becoming a figure that is more known and taught. I will say certainly from my perspective as a university professor, I find more students and colleagues approaching me with some knowledge of Shergill that would not have been possible or would have been very unlikely 20 years ago because they've seen a work in an exhibition. These kinds of presentations, I think, are raising awareness of her legacy and her contributions to modernism on a global scale. But I think people have had very little opportunity, as you pointed out, to actually see the work themselves, to see a large body of work, to know it, to love it. Absolutely. Sanal Kalar, thank you so much for this incredibly in-depth analysis and just work on Amrita Shigil. I mean, we are so lucky that you have dedicated so much of your life to this fantastic artist. And I just can't wait to explore more and see more of her work in real life. And this conversation has really been that sort of insight into that. But we do have one more question. If you could meet Shigil and ask her something or say something to her, what would it be? I think it'll be no surprise to you. That was the hardest question to answer. Um, 
<laughs> of all the questions I had contemplated, I think I would like to know what Shergill would make of the reception of her work. In some ways, the way in which the myth and the legend of the artist has come to preoccupy us. I would like to know what she would say to all of us about how the work has operated in the wake of her death as a touchstone. For good or bad, this is the work that I must fight or this is the work I must emulate. Absolutely. So Nalkala, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you, Katie. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of The Great Woman Artist with the fantastic Sonal Kular on the brilliant Amrita Sheergill. I'm in complete awe of her life and work and urge you all to look it up. As always, I have linked to everything in the show notes. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Nada Smanelic and research assistant was Viva Ruji. If you have been enjoying these episodes, please do rate, review and subscribe as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to The Great Woman Artist podcast with me. Katie Hessel.